I want to remind you of where we've been in the past few weeks. Last week was Thanksgiving and uh, week, so we didn't have uh, Bible study, and so I want to make sure we're up to speed and, and don't forget where we are. Remember that uh, David has gone out into the wilderness, and he's put together this 600-man fighting unit, this uh, crack cavalry unit out there that's just a powerful fighting force in his day. Uh, he has worked as a mer- mercenary for the Philistines. He, he was rewarded for his work there with the city of Ziklag by, the, by King Achish. And he began this series of raids into Amalekite territory, all the while telling King Achish that he was raiding Jewish towns. So that's a very, very short synopsis of where, where we've been. Uh, in response to David's raids, the Amalekites, then while David was gone with his soldiers, they raided the city of Ziklag and kidnapped everyone. And David and his men tracked them down and killed all but 400 of the, of the Amalekite raiders. Uh, and, and through all of this, through all of the things that's going on, David has become extremely famous. He's, he's sort of like a frontier gunslinger. You know, he, he's like Wyatt Earp. You know, I mean, that's, he's famous out there. And tonight, what I want to do is, is I want to, and, this, and I hope you're not offended by this, uh, but I want to talk about six idiots. Um, which idiot is not necessarily a bad word you know the Greek word it comes from just means they do not know Uh, so 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 there are many times I'm an idiot because I just don't know but but I want to talk about I want to look at six idiots that we can learn from because you know what there are there are great things that we can learn from great people isn't that true I mean we can learn a lot of things from great people but there are also important lessons that we can learn from idiots and it is better by far to learn from an idiot than to be one and gain your, the, the reward of an idiot. Are you following me? So, uh, so that's what I want to talk about. But I want to set the stage a little bit. Uh, we're, we're going to be in the very end of 1 Samuel, the first part of 2 Samuel tonight. Uh, and, and so I want to set the stage. I want us to go back to Saul for a minute. We're not going to spend a lot of time on him because we're not studying his life, but you can't. Uh, examine the life of David without including Saul because he was such an important part of his life. Saul, King Saul, his life by this point in time just finally just spins out into a pathetic nightmare. Uh, All the demons that he was struggling with when when David as a boy would sing him to sleep finally just kind of overwhelm him and, and his life, King Saul's life just ends in a nightmare that's really pretty predictable. How many of you know, you, you can see things begin to implode in somebody's life when things are starting to go wrong. Uh, you can sort of see the pattern. You can see the direction they're on, and it begins to collapse. And many times when uh, the house of cards begins to collapse, it goes very quickly, doesn't it? And we've all seen that. And, and, and when you see that and you see somebody's life collapse like that, sometimes, sometimes it's a total surprise to us, but most of the time, you look at them and you kind of say, well, you know, I, I saw that coming. I really saw that coming. And, and that's certainly true with, with Saul. And you remember when I told you that, that Saul, when he took over as king of Israel in, in Gibeah, there were two things that he cracked down on immediately. You remember that? Uh, he, he cracked down on witchcraft and he cracked down on homosexuality. And later on, Uh, He vaguely accuses David and his own son, Jonathan, of being homosexual. He says to Jonathan that he had shamed him with David, and it was hinted at even though though it was completely untrue. 
And, and so, you know, he's already, you know, obsessed with that. But then, having outlawed witchcraft before the end of his life, it starts, he starts going so out of control that the night before he was killed, King Saul went to consult a witch. Which I always, that story always amazes me because he goes to see the witch at Endor. And, uh, and, and so she goes to see him. And, and if you read the story, it's kind of, uh, it's one of those moments that's almost a little funny to me. Because she go, he goes to consult this witch at Endor and, and uh, wants to speak to the prophet Samuel who is dead by now. And so the witch calls for the spirit of the prophet Samuel. And when you read the story, the witch is scared to death because she said, if this is really him. She, she was not really talking to dead people. It was, they were, they're familiar spirits. They're, it's demonic spirits that she was dealing with. But now Samuel really shows up and it scares her. But that's a whole different story. So she, he does this. His life is spiraling out of control. And on the battlefield at Mount Gilboa, Saul's army, he, he's fighting with the Philistines. And his army is completely routed by the Philistines. And Jonathan is killed in the battle. Uh, Saul is injured severely and he sees he's going to lose and so he can't get somebody to kill him for himself so he falls on his own sword to kill himself. And now the interesting is thing that we have to ask ourselves, Saul and the Israelites are fighting the Philistines. Well, David is a mercenary for the Philistines. So the question for us is, where is David during this big battle between the Philistines and the Israelites at Mount Gilboa? Well, the thing is, David has been spared that battle and spared that decision by the, the, by the divine work of God. And here's how it happened. See, King Achish loved David. He really liked him. And, and the reason he really liked him is because David brought in more money and more plunder to him than any of his other generals. But King Achish's generals, they don't like David. They're jealous of him and they don't trust him. And they come to the king before this battle and they say, look, we're, we're getting ready to go into battle with the Israelites. And you're telling us you want us to take 600 powerful Israelite soldiers with us. And what they're going to do is they're going to, they're going to be inside of our army. They're going to be working uh, uh, you know, around us, working, uh, fighting with our soldiers. And here's what's going to happen. We're going to be in the middle of the battle fighting the Israelites. And then David is going to change his mind and he's going to attack us from the rear. So just leave him here. Well, King Achish doesn't like it. He's fond of David. You know, he's brought a lot of money in for him. And, and, and the truth is King Achish believes that he owns David. Because remember what David was doing, he was telling King Achish, yes, I'm raiding Jewish towns, but he was really riding out north and then uh, circling around to the south and attacking the Amalekites, then coming back in from the north and saying, yes, this is from Jewish towns. So King Achish, he thinks that the name of David is mud among the Israelites because he thinks he's been attacking them. So he thinks there's no way David can even ever possibly go back to the Israelites because they will reject him. And so he thinks he owns David because, because of what he's been doing. And so he says, you know, I, I think David is a good guy. And they say, my Lord, you're trusting him when you shouldn't. So anyway, eventually King Achish calls David in and says, look, sit this one out. I think we can handle without you. The generals don't like you. They don't want you there. And the truth is David is relieved because he has made a vow that he's never going to take the life of a Jewish person. He's never going to, uh, uh, in battle, take 
uh, the life of an Israelite. And now he doesn't have to face that dilemma. He doesn't have to face the decision. Am I going to break my vow or am I going to turn on the, 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 the Philistines and break, you know, the, whatever trust I have there? And so he and his mercenaries sit out the battle at Ziklag, which they have now by this time rebuilt. Well, we know the Philistines won the battle decisively. Jonathan is killed. Saul is killed. And, and now what, what do you think happens? Saul is dead. He's the only king they've ever known. They have never really been a nation. They've all just been this loose, you know, confederation of tribes at best where if one tribe's in trouble, the other tribes would come and help them. But they sort of had their own rule and the tribes kind of looked out for things. Now Saul has been king and he's, he's the one that tried to forge this trans-tribal army. And when Saul dies, Israel just basically disintegrates as a nation. There is now no nation. There's no capital. There's nothing. So the tribe of Judah, they basically said, you know what? We're pulling out of this whole deal. Saul is dead. He was the one that was holding all this thing together. So we're through with this. We're going to pull back. We're going to form our own little nation. It's going to be called Judah. And we just need somebody to lead us. So, so they say, hey, what about this guy down at Ziklag? You know, he, I mean, he's... Looked out for people in, in this region. Uh, you know, he's taking care of the farmers. He protected them from the Amalekites. He's the most dangerous man in the region. We need a warrior. We need a leader. We need somebody that's, that's the terror of the south. Who do we get? And they said, let's go down to Ziklag and get David. So the leaders of the tribe of Judah come to Ziklag and they find David and they appeal to him. And, and, and they come and, and, and they, they want him. They say, come and be the king over Judah. David prays about it, and the Lord says, yes, go. And so David gathers his 600-man army and all of their dependents. And while the Philistine army is returning and celebrating their victory over the Israelites, David is, is evacuating Ziklag and leaving Philistia behind. And so he goes up to the Judean hills to the city of Hebron, which is the tribal capital of Judah. And David becomes the king, the, the leader, the head. Now, don't think King Arthur. Not like that, you know, it's not like anything like that. He, he's, the, he's the leader, uh, more like a tribal chieftain in, uh, more than anything else. Uh, but he's the king of, of the tribe of Judah. So he's on his way to the fulfillment of his destiny. He's no longer a shepherd boy. He's no longer an outlaw riding, you know, hiding in a cave. He's no longer a mercenary hired by the Philistines. He is now finally a Jewish king over his own tribe in the city of Hebron. So Saul is dead. The army of Israel has been decimated. And David, I want to, I want to introduce two characters, and then we'll get to the six idiots that we're going to talk about tonight. David's number one man is his nephew Joab. How many remember we've talked about Joab before? Joab is, uh, you know, he's a dangerous man. He's a deadly man. Now, uh, uh, David he kind of struggles internally with all this war and bloodshed. David is a man after God's own heart. He's, he's a man, you know, now uh, admittedly he's a man, you know, up to his elbows in blood. Uh, but he, and he's not without his sins, but David's heart is after God. And his entire life is filled with a lot of internal angst. And he's a very conflicted man. Joab, his general, however, has no conflict whatsoever. He will kill you at the blink of an eye. Doesn't matter to him, doesn't bother him. And, and so, you know, I compared David to Wyatt Earp. 
earlier? Well, Joab then would be Doc Holliday. <laughs> All right? Uh, and, and, and this guy is armed and dangerous. So you got Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday, and, and, and Doc Holliday is a serious hombre. He's a lethal man, okay? So, so that's David's number one man. Saul's number one guy, the general over all of his armies, is a man named Abner. Now, Joab and Abner are the top two military men in these two opposing groups. In the, 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 the line of Saul and the, the men who followed David. Abner, at Saul's death, he takes one of Saul's sons, Ishbosheth, and makes him king. Now, Jonathan would have been his choice because he, he was the first son, but he's dead. David might have become king, but he's not there anymore. He's been chased out by Saul. So Abner takes Ishbosheth and makes him king. So now you've got a king in the north named Ishbosheth. And you've got David, a king in the south. And each of them have their own, their, their top generals and these, these lethal killers, Joab and Abner. And there's war for, for a long time between the clan of David and, and the clan of Saul. And this really brings us to our idiots and the, the string of, of events that happen that we're going to talk about that we can learn to. Here's, here we go. The, the first idiot, idiot number one, is an Amalekite warrior. We don't even know his name but is an Amalekite, and he's fighting as a mercenary in Saul's army and in this battle of the, the Philistines, and he finds Saul's body on Mount Gilboa, and he says to himself, now this is your classic misread, he, he, he sees the situation and he says, this is my opportunity to take advantage of a bad moment. And so he, he, he makes a tragic mistake. And there's a good, good lesson here. Uh, and that lesson is make sure you understand the entire situation before you act, uh, which requires patience, which requires waiting, which we're going to talk a little bit more about that tonight as well. So anyway, this Amalekite soldier, he, he goes to David, and he says to David, he said, David, Saul is dead. And David says, how do you know? And this is where, where he makes a mistake because he just flat out lies. And he says, I killed him. I found Saul wounded on the battlefield. And he said, go ahead and kill me. So I killed him. And David says, you killed the king? And he says, I sure did. I know you hated him. I know that he hounded you. I know that he, he hunted you like a, like a dog in the desert. I know that he made your life a living nightmare. And I've killed him for you. And he's thinking to himself, I'm going to get a reward out of this. This is going to go good for me. And David says, you killed the king with your own hands. And he says, yes, your majesty, I sure did. And David says, kill this boy. And David's soldiers fall on the guy and kill him. David says, I mean, basically David says, look, look if, if I spared Saul all of those years when, I, when he was trying to kill me and I had the chance to kill him with my own hand, what makes you think that I would want you to kill him for me? He said, you know, it's, it's against God to kill the anointed king. That's for God to take care of, not for, for you or for me to take, out, uh, to take into our own hands. And he kills the guy. And it was a tragic mistake on the Amalekites Part. Now, uh, listen to this now. This is a great leadership life lesson. And this is really important. You cannot curry favor with a person of integrity 
by accomplishing that which they want by immoral, illegal, or unethical means. Yeah, I'm going to try. You cannot curry favor with a person of integrity by accomplishing, by accomplishing that, which what they, that which they want by immoral, illegal, or unethical means. See, now, just they may get what they want, and they may even take it. You know, here's what you wanted. I got it. I had to lie and steal and cheat to get it, but I got it for you. Great. Thank you very much. You're fired. Because you can't curry favor with a person of integrity by getting what they want through, through immoral, illegal, or unethical means. See, because by that integrity, they say, I want, I want this, but I want it the right way. And so that's an important lesson to learn because a mis miscalculation will bring you tumbling down when you're trying to go forward. By the way, that whole process of doing something like that, what you're really doing is trying to manipulate the situation and manipulate the people. And you know what manipulate means? Uh, you know, anybody here know what the, what the Spanish word for hands is? Manos. The, 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 and it's, you know, Spanish is a Latin language, and so it comes from the, from the, from the Latin, but it it's talks about hands, manos. What's the first part of manipulation? It's talking about you put your hands and you try to make, twist and turn and make things happen by your own power. And, and when you're doing that, when you're, when you're doing things immoral, illegal, and unethical to make it happen, you're trying to manipulate the situation, you're trying to manipulate that person, all to be in, in the, with the purpose of trying to elevate yourself and move yourself forward. When you do that and you're dealing with a person of integrity, then what will happen is instead of propelling yourself forward, it will knock you out of the picture completely. Now, if you're if your boss is unethical, they're going to be like, thanks, <laughs> you got a promotion. You know, that, uh, but, but by the way, um, uh, if your boss is that, that person, you really can't trust them to do by, right by you either. And a person with integrity knows that if you're willing to do that for them, then that means you're willing to do that to them. You know, I, you know this is a side uh, topic, but... You know, one of the things I, it's always been amazing to me about gossip uh, is that people that want to participate in gossip and they want to hear the latest news, they want to hear the latest things that's going on in somebody's life. I've got some news for you. That friend of yours, if they're willing to talk with you behind somebody else's back, then they are going to talk about you to somebody else behind your back. Every time. And so, anyway, that's a different, different subject. We'll approach that another day. Uh, but uh, with a leader integrity, uh, you know, you killed Saul. Saul's dead. He's out of my hair. He was moved, removed from my life. But, I, but I'm going to punish the guy that killed him. And that's David. It's a huge moment. It shows that he was a person of integrity. He's saying, you know, I'm not going to receive something uh, that's done the wrong way. So that's idiot number one, the Amalekite warrior. Idiot number two, let's go to him. His name is, is Asahel. A-S-A-H-E-L. <laughs> Candy was like, <laughs> Yeah, and I'll tell you how to spell Ishbosheth later. Um, so, um, A-S-A-H-E-L. And Ishbosheth was 
I-S-H-O-S-H-E-T-H. Ishbosheth. And Asahel. Okay. But we're going to talk about Ishbosheth in a little bit too. But Asahel, he's idiot number two. Now, you remember we just talked about Abner a minute ago. And, and uh, in, in, there's a skirmish. Remember that I told you there's this war that went on for a long time uh, because David was king of Judah for about seven and a half years before he ascended to the throne of Israel. So during that time, there's this back and forth between David's uh, clan, David's uh, people, and the people of Saul. And during this time period, uh, Abner, uh, there's this skirmish. It's not really even a battle. It's just a few warrior, a few men of Abner's and a few men from uh, Joab's uh, uh, army and, and, and uh, Joab's younger brother, uh, it was in that little skirmish. His name, his name uh, was Asahel, and he decided he was going to challenge Abner himself. Now, how many of you know that when it comes to kids, if you have more than one child, they're very much different, aren't they? They're, they're never the same. So here you've got these two, uh, well, they're not brother. Yeah, it was, it was Joab's younger brother. And, and so Azahel, Joab was this fierce and feared warrior. But his younger brother, he was a lightweight. You know, I don't know if he had small man syndrome. You know what small man syndrome is? You know, I don't know if he had that. So he thought, I'm going to get that Abner. You know, I don't know what he, what he was thinking. But he was going to get after him. And, and so it, the truth was he was no match for Abner. And she, he should have known it. But Asahel kept pursuing Abner, determined to make him fight. And Abner is basically kind of looking back over his shoulder and saying, Look, I don't want to kill the younger brother of Doc Holliday. You know, that's not what I want to do. Just go away. Leave me alone. I don't want to fight you. And, and Abner just urged him to turn back. But Asahel was an idiot. And so, uh, you know, it's a, here's a little life lesson. Do not follow into the parking lot and threaten a bigger, more heavily armed man th than yourself. Okay? Okay, so he insulted you in the movie theater. <laughs> Swallow it. <laughs> Just walk away from it. Don't follow a big guy with a big gun into a dark parking lot and yell threats at him. That's just a general rule of thumb right there. Uh, can I get an amen from the, from the uh, law enforcement back there? But Azahel just wouldn't quit. Abner was trying to get rid of him. He wouldn't quit. Thinking that he had the older man cornered, at one point in time, he charged at him as fast as he could. And the Bible says he was very, very fast. And so he, he charged at him as fast as he could. And Abner, finally deciding he had no other choice, he flipped his spear around so that the blunt end of the, of the spear was toward Azahel. And, and this out-of-control Azahel ran himself right onto the back of the spear, forcing it through his ribs and out his back. And Abner, who knew Azahel was Joab's brother, he wanted to later be able to say, I wasn't trying to kill him. I, I even had the backside of the spear to him. He did it to himself. And, and, but the truth was, such a, a subtle distinction is going to be wasted on Joab because he's a hothead and a, and a uh, very dangerous man. Now here's a lesson for us. We need to learn. The Bible says each man should look at himself soberly. We need to be honest about who we are, what our gifts are, what our strengths are, and have a modest and reasonable view of your own skills and experiences. Having, having a, a great dream 
is, is not the same as arrogant overreach. You know, we, we got to learn, don't bite off more than you can chew. And, and the other thing is we got to learn to listen to the counsel of those who have been there before. Abner had been there before. He kept telling him, you don't want any piece of me, buddy. Just go home. I don't want to hurt you. But he wouldn't listen. So that's idiot number two. Let's go to idiot number three. You've never heard a Bible study like this, have you? Idiot number three is Ishbosheth. I-S-H-I-S-H-I-S-H-O-B-O-S-H-E-T-H. Ishbosheth. Now, okay, now, Abner, remember, he was a general over all of Saul's armies, and he, I just said earlier that uh, he, was, he made Ishbosheth Israel's new king. Because that was the next person in line. That was all he had uh, to do. Now Abner, being a great general that he was, and fierce warrior, uh, uh, he was, had control over uh, what was left of Saul's army. And his control was sufficient enough to ensure that no objections were raised. If Abner said he was the king, then the army was like, hey, I'm not going to f- argue with Abner. And, and, uh, and, and few, if any, argued because he was a dangerous man. Now, the problem was, Ishbosheth was a class A nincompoop. That's a great word, isn't it? Yeah, I can't that So You don't have to. Um, I mean, this kid was just an absolute goofball. And he, he, think about this. Here he is. He's hanging by a thread. He's the king of a war-weakened nation that has just lost its king, its greatest uh, fighter. Saul, remember, was, the, was head and shoulders over everybody else in Israel. So he's, he's considered Israel, the nation of Israel, not, not con- con- including David, but he's considered the greatest warrior. And, and uh, this war-weakened nation that's just lost the king the, with a scattered army, and, and it's even lost one of its tribes. Judah has pulled out, remember? And he, he has at his right hand one of the most dangerous men in the entire region, Abner. In the south, now he has an opposing kingdom and a highly trained army that would kill him in a heartbeat. Uh, his, his only hope, the only hope he had for security is Abner, right? I mean, Abner is the one who said, okay, you're the king. And I'm strong enough to make sure you're the king. He's the only hope he has for security. So what do you think he ought to do? Well, how about accuse Abner of sleeping with his father's concubine? That'd be a good plan, don't you think? Well, that's what he did. He calls Abner in and he accuses Abner of sleeping with his father's concubine. He said, you have shamed my father because you had an affair with my father's concubine. uh, And her name was Rizpah. And Abner says, you must be insane. I never touched your father's concubine. Why would you even say this? And then he looks at Ishbosheth, and Abner says, may God deal with me severely if I don't help David become king of Israel now. And Ishbosheth realizes, oh, that was not a good idea. But he doesn't say anything because he's afraid of Abner. He knows he can't do anything about it. So, so here's another life and leadership lesson. And you'll see this in life. Small, petty men are afraid of powerful men, even those in their service, and they may be, un, be unable to control themselves and may actually 
destroy themselves because of their own insecurities and their own fear of their subordinates. I've seen situations, I, I know of churches where a pastor hired a, a youth pastor who was just phenomenal, you know, just gifted and just great and loved by the people, but he felt so threatened by that person that he fired the, the person and then hired somebody that was inferior just because it made him feel better. How, how well do you think that's, that plays out in the long term? You see, we've got to learn, uh, you know, we've got to learn to be comfortable who God has made us and be who he has made us and, and learn to deal with the, uh, uh, the insecurities that crop up in our lives. You know, I, may, I, may, I decided a long time ago, and I'm making a matter of prayer all the time, uh, and I made it a matter of prayer my whole ministry, just saying, Lord, with your, by your grace, I will not be an insecure pastor. And, and I fought those, those moments. I remember when we were in Reno, um, I was only the third pastor in the history of the church. The founding pastor was still part of the church. And he had been pastor, I think, there for maybe seven years. And then the next pastor was there for 17 years. And he was in that church. He was everybody's spiritual father or grandfather. You know, I mean, he was deeply loved and deeply respected. And I'm the new guy. And I remember um, I invited him to come speak at the church because I had made that decision. I was going to say, I'm not going to be an insecure pastor. And I remember sitting in the front row and he's up there preaching that Sunday. And the whole service, you know what I was fighting? They wish he was doing this every Sunday. <laughs> and you know what? There may have been some. But, but, I, but I, you, you know, I couldn't let the insecurities take hold and then begin to act on those insecurities because doing so, I would have shot myself in the foot and ruined whatever God was trying to do in my ministry because, again, I'm getting my hands in and trying to control things, you know, and pushing away a man that was loved by the people. And this is what I learned a long time ago is that if you go into a church that has a, a, a greatly loved pastor before you, you better honor that person or you're going to push the people away that love him. And so that, that's a lesson is, is not to deal with those insecurities and to recognize those, you know, in other people because uh, you just don't, you know, you don't, they will do things that are not reasonable if they're being controlled by their insecurities. So Ishbosheth, he knew Abner was a bigger, better man than he was, and he couldn't stand it, so he did everything he could to take him down. And Abner says, okay, well, adios, I'm out of here. And he leaves only to become our next idiot. He is number four. See, Abner, he goes straight down to David. And he tells David, I hate to say it, David, but I've installed an idiot as a king, and I'm ready to serve you if you'll have me. David says, great. And David sends Abner away in peace, and he, and he sends Abner, he says, you stay in the city of Hebron. There's a reason for that. I'll talk about that in a minute. And he sends him away, and, 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 and he knew that Joab would be looking to avenge his brother's death. And he knew that Joab would not be satisfied until Abner paid with his life. And, and so Joab shows up, and he comes to David, and he says, Hey, I heard Abner was here. David says, Yes, he's here. Joab says, He killed my brother. And David says, I know he did, but that was in battle. He's with us now. He's on our side. Now just leave him alone. 
Can anybody guess what Joab did next? He went straight to, he went straight to Abner. And he tells, he tells Abner, now Abner is in the city of Hebron. Now, Hebron was a city of refuge. And what that meant was that they, in the Israelite law, you'll, you'll read about it, they had these cities of refuge where if somebody killed somebody but it was not intentional, uh, they could go to a city of refuge and as long as they stayed in the city of refuge, the people who wanted vengeance could not touch them. They could not hurt them. But they had to stay in the city of refuge. Now, it was not a place where if you intentionally murdered somebody, you couldn't go there. That was not what it was for. But in a situation where somebody could say, I, I, you know, it was an accident. I didn't mean to kill him. Uh, but but the, that other family outside of that city would have the right of vengeance, you know, an eye for an eye. That was the law in those days. And so Abner is in the city of Hebron. Job goes straight to the city of Hebron. And, and, he, and, and he tells Abner, he stands outside the walls of the city. And he, he says to, to him, hey, Abner. Come here. I got something for you. <laughs> you think? <laughs> and Abner walks out to meet Joab and says, hey, what, what do you got for me? And Joab says, this. And he pulls out a dagger and, 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 and from the folds of his robe and he stabs uh, the, the, him in the stomach in exactly the same place where where uh, where. where uh, Abner's spear went through his brother Azahel's body. And word of this reaches David. Now Joab has not broken the law because he did not go in the city. Uh, Abner, all he had to do was stay in the city. But word of this reaches David. And he says, should Abner die as a fool dies? Why? Because Hebron was a city of refuge. As long as he stayed there in the city of Hebron, Joab could not have touched him. And inside the city of refuge, you know, all he had to do was stay there and he'd be safe. Why did Abner die as a fool? Because all Abner had to do was stay inside the city walls of Hebron and he would have been safe. Stay in the place of safety and you'll be just fine. Now, let me ask you this. Who else made this same mistake? Think about it. He was in a place where he had been divinely and supernaturally protected over and over and over again, but fled away from the one place where he knows he's safe. David did. And David knows this. And, and he, would, he had been in the city at Naoth and Ramah. And, and, and night after night after night, David was supernaturally protected. So what does he do? He leaves there and goes to, to, to Gath. And David looks at this as Abner. I know how foolish that really was because I did the same thing. You made the same mistake that I did. Only you paid for it with your life. You know what? When you're safe... When you're secure, we're in the when you're in the place where you're standing in God's protection, when you're in the place where God wants you to be, then stand still and wait on God. It keeps coming back to this manipulation thing that we do where we try to get our hands in and try to make things happen and try to do things, but don't run ahead of God and, and try to figure things out and try to fix things. Don't take matters into your own hands. Leave them in the hands of God. 
Abner stepped out into the arms of his enemy and he died as a naive fool. Now in the meantime, some men in the north begin to conspire. Abner's gone now. He's left Ishbosheth. And the only protection that Ishbosheth had in the person of Abner, he has driven away. So two men take Ishbosheth and kill him. They murder him. And so now there is no king in the north. And these two guys are our next and final two idiots. Their names were, uh, were, were Rechab and Baana. R-E-C-A-B, everybody's looking at me. And B-A-A-N-A-H. These two guys, Rechab and Baana, having killed Ishbosheth, they get on their horses, and where do you think they go? <laughs> That's right. They go to David. And they walk in and say, We've got great news. We've killed King Ishbosheth. We want you to know that there's no competition for you to be the king over all of Israel. And David says, You killed Ishbosheth? They say, yes, your majesty, the two of us did. We held him down, we stabbed him, we cut his head off. Ishbosheth is dead. And David says, did you hear what I did to the guy that killed Saul? And they say, yeah, what's that that got to do with us? And David says, kill these guys. And his soldiers killed him. And listen, this this is is just a good lesson. The, The book of Proverbs says, that a wise man regards the destruction of a fool and gets wisdom. Let's just put it this way. When you see people walking over a cliff in front of you, stop. It's really not that complicated. These two men knew what had happened before, but they did not learn from the mistakes of previous idiots and therefore became idiots of their own right. You can learn from the mistakes of others if you will pay attention to the consequences they suffer and realize, here's the problem. Here's the problem. We we lie to ourselves. How many of you know we lie to ourselves all the time? We say, ah, but that won't happen to me. And we lie, lie to ourselves. How many think it might be better to learn from the mistakes of other people rather than having to make those mistakes yourself. You know, I, I was thinking about this in kind of an illustration. Uh, my oldest daughter, Erin, when she was just getting to the age, you know, where I knew that boys were going to start getting interested in her, and, and, and I'm still, you know, not okay with that. Mm-hmm. Um, don't know that I ever will be, because there are no young men out there good enough. I'm, I'm convinced of that, but that's a different story. Uh, but, but I remember having, sitting down and talking with her, and we were talking about things, and we, we kind of set up some arrangements as far as if a boy comes to her and says, hey, would you like to go out, that they got to come and talk to me first. And there's a lot, a lot of things that does because uh, a man generally can see through the uh, false motives of a, of a boy quicker than, than mom or, or sis can. Um, because the man has been there and he can pick up on things. So sometimes it's a protection there. But I also told her the other thing is you're a very uh, kind and tender-hearted person, and if a boy comes up to you and wants to go out with you, 
but you don't want to go out with them, it's going to be hard for you to say no. So you come to me and say, such and such might be coming to, to talk to you about if I can go out with them. I don't want to go. And I told her, when you tell me that, I don't care. It doesn't bother me to say no at all. So, you know, it's just a little protection there. But I remember having the conversation. I said, Aaron, just I, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at your friends that have boyfriends. I said, just pay attention. Look at what goes on in their life. And then I said, ask yourself this question. Do I want that kind of drama in my life? And a few days later, she came back and she said, Daddy, I don't want that kind of drama. <laughs> That's wisdom to learn, be able to learn from other people rather than have to do it yourself. But anyway, at the end of all this, Israel needed a king. And the elders of the northern tribes knew that there was only one choice. There was only one thing to do. They humbled themselves and went to Hebron to plead with David to, to reunify the nation and become the king, not just of Judah, but of all Israel. And they say, you're the king. You've been the king since you were a little boy when Samuel anointed you. But we thought we needed to stay loyal to Saul. Now we know you are our king. You are the man that God has chosen. We want you to be king. And David is crowned king in the city of Hebron. And, and the prophecy of Samuel is fulfilled. At the age of 37, more than 20 years after Samuel anointed him in Bethlehem, David assumed the throne of Israel, the, the throne to which God had called him. Over 20 years of not just waiting, but of suffering while he's waiting. Many of those years. Let me close with, with, with three things to remember between the announcement of your destiny and your destiny itself. When you hear, when you sense the call of God saying, I want you to do this, this is what I want to accomplish. It, from that moment until the day he actually fulfills it in your life, there, there are things that, that are going to take place and you need to understand. And during that process of getting from here to there, God wants you to, uh, where he wants you to be, you may go through wars and setbacks and lonely caves. You will, you will go through seasons where it looks like your destiny is getting further away, not closer. Because there were times when in David's life, it looked like he was getting further and further away from being the king of Israel. During this time, remember three things. Number one, it's really important. Do today what you have to do to succeed in this moment. Wherever God has you right now, he has you there on purpose. Take every opportunity you have to do today well. You know, wherever you are, whatever calling God has ha put you on, wherever, whatever place he has you in, you give yourself to that fully. I've known way too many people that they felt the call of God and they said, God has called me to do such and such. And, and that's down the road and they have this dream, they have this vision, but they're not willing to do what God calls them to do now. And listen, if you're not going to be faithful in the small thing, God will never take you to the big thing. So do what you have to do today to succeed in this moment. Succeed wherever God has you. Be faithful, which is the definition of success. Be faithful wherever God has you, no matter how far from your destiny you think that you are. Number two, try not to make mistakes that will damage your own future. Now, I know that's hard because it's like, oh, how am I going to know this? And David clearly made his share of mistakes, but he was always confident in God's timing and he refused 
to try forcing God's hand. And I think that's one of the big mistakes that can damage our future when we get our hands in and we try to make things happen. That's the, one of the worst mistakes that we can make. Number three, this is so vital. Keep your heart fixed on who God is. Not just what he does, but who he is. Keep your, your, your heart fixed on that. In, in the complications, in the valleys, in, in the low times, in the times of pain and suffering, stay focused with God at the center of your life. Be a person after God's own heart. Always remember that He is a God who is faithful, that He is a God of peace. He is a God of love. He is a God who keeps His promises. He is a God who walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. He's, he is who He is, and we've got to keep our eyes on that instead of looking at our circumstances. You know, David's journey to the throne of Israel began when a famous prophet anointed him with oil. And between that night and the throne, he spent lonely days herding sheep, spent lonely years in a cave, and lonely decades in exile. That hardly feels like the right path to, to a kingdom. But you know what? Here's what I want you to hear. There's no reason to believe that your path to your destiny will look any better. You don't know where he will take you. All that matters is that you're walking on the path that he puts you on. Do as David did. Whatever, whenever you realize, this is so hard for us, whenever you realize that there's nothing you can do, wait. That's so hard, isn't it? It's so hard to wait. Especially in our microwave fast food culture. You know, we think if we have to wait four minutes for, a, for food that it's an eternity and somebody should lose their job or they've, they've lost their tip. Took them four minutes to get me a refill on my Diet Coke. You know, and, and, and when we get to that place where there's nothing we can do, well, then quit trying to do and just wait. Take refuge in God. Take refuge in His sovereign plan. Take refuge in the fact that, that you know that he knows where you are, that he is the one who has, has a plan for your life, and you can trust him that if he's got you in this place, that there's a reason for it. Don't try to, to, to manipulate the situation. But Let me just add this. Don't just wait. I'm going to make it really, really painful. Wait patiently. Like now I'm just getting down and dirty and mean, aren't I? Don't try to force anything to happen. Just wait on God. You know, I mean, and you can read through Scripture. There are all kinds of instances where people had to wait for long periods of time just waiting on God, and, and they didn't force anything. They didn't manipulate anything, but they waited patiently, and eventually God got them to exactly the place where they needed to be. You, you look at Joseph. All those years as a slave and then in prison uh, in Egypt, all of that time of suffering and, and, and being separated from family and all of the pain he walked through, but God was still with him and eventually got him to the place he needed him to be. 
You, you look at Abraham. He, he made Abraham a promise and said, you're going to have a child. And you're going to be the father of, a, of, of many nations. And, and there's going to be your, your seed is going to be like the sands on the beach that you won't be able to count them all. And, and between that promise and the fulfillment, it was over 25 years. Over and over again. They had to wait. But here's the interesting thing. I, I think you see it especially with Joseph. When you wait, your situation may not change. But you will. You will change. In fact, you may discover that the reason for waiting was all for your benefit because you're the one who needed to change. Joseph, as a brash 17-year-old, and I say that because when God gave him the dream and said, your brother's going to bow down to you, what did he do? He went straight to his brother and said, hey, guess what I saw? I had a dream. You, you all are going to bow down to me. And I don't know about you, but I've been just like his older brothers because my younger brother comes to me like that. I, there's going to be a beat down in the house, Right? So he was not ready, was he? He had a lot of growing to do. He was not ready to, to be the ruler that God had planned for him to be. So God said, I'm going to do this. But what Joseph didn't realize was the path to get there was going to be long. It was going to be hard. It was going to be painful. But in the end, it would be worth it. And all the years spent as a slave, spent as a, as a prisoner, unjustly accused, unjustly thrown into prison, all those years, God was shaping his character because Joseph remained faithful. Joseph continued to honor God. Joseph continued to worship God. Joseph continued to uh, be a man of integrity. He continued to do the right things and live the right way and, and to honor God with his life. And in so doing, God, through all of these things, continued to chip away and shape and mold his character so that at the point when he finally reached the pinnacle of power where he had been called to be and his brothers showed up and he had the power in his hands in that moment, he could have had them all wiped out. But God had so shaped his character that he looked at them and had not one uh, thought of malice, not one thought of hate, not one thought of revenge, but literally broke down in tears and that as he saw the brothers who had sold him into slavery and was able to look at them and say, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. And see, that's the, the thing in the waiting there's also a shaping. There's a preparing. There's something that God is getting you ready for. Everything you're going through now, everything that you're walking through, everything that you're doing now is all a part of God getting you ready for the next thing he wants to do. And if we'll recognize that, then we can learn to wait on the Lord. And let him do his work. Easily said. Not so easily done. But by the grace of God. And by the, with the help of the Holy Spirit. This we can do. Let's pray. Father.
I do thank you, Lord, that 